0: As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have,
1: the smoother your weld is.
0: Learn more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact.
1: Who was Dennis Edwards? And why was he dropped behind enemy lines some six hours before the beach landings on D-Day? turns out he was tasked with one of the most dangerous missions to take place on the 6th of June 1944. Welcome to season three of Unknown History D-Day Stories. I'm your host Giles Milton and today we're talking about a specialist team who were sent on a mission in which failure was not an option. Many hours before the beach landings on D-Day, when it was still pitch dark, an extraordinary and top secret nighttime operation was underway. A small group of young men, British and Canadian, were being dropped into Normandy under the cover of darkness on a mission of the utmost importance. Their task was to spearhead the initial assault on occupied France with an audacious coup de main, a swift and surprise attack that would require them to land deep behind enemy lines. Long before the seaborne forces struggled ashore, this little group would be fighting their way through the French countryside with the goal of seizing two vitally important bridges, one at the village of Ranville and one at Benneville. The capture of these bridges was crucial to the success of D-Day. They were the principal crossing points for two waterways, the River Orne and the Conquenal, which ran northwards to the coast. If the bridges remained in German hands, the Allied troops due to land at dawn risked being trapped inside their beachhead. If that happened, the SS Panzer Divisions would be able to sweep across the bridges and drive those newly landed men back into the sea. Among the soldiers taking part in the mission was 19-year-old Dennis Edwards. He looked far too young to be entrusted with such a hazardous mission. With his scrub cheeks and boyish grin, he might have been mistaken for a member of the sea cadets. But Dennis Edwards was far from naive and had no illusions as to the perils that lay ahead. Terrifyingly dangerous is how he described it. There were so many possibilities for things to go badly wrong. His young comrades in D Company were equally twitchy. What if the Germans counterattack, they asked? What if the seaborne forces don't break through the German defenses in time? The architects of the operation could provide few answers. Like everything else on D-Day, the outcome would rest with those like Edwards, who were to do the fighting on the ground. The lads in Dennis Edwards' team had one critical advantage over the thousands of other men about to be deployed. Their commander, John Howard, had proved himself a genius when it came to training them. A 32-year-old Oxfordshire policeman with a deep sense of purpose, Howard had pushed his men through a training programme unlike any other, with a relentless focus on physical fitness. By the beginning of June, they'd been transformed into an elite fighting force. This was just as well, for a crack SS division had just been stationed close to the bridge they were tasked with capturing. They were to land at night by glider, dropped into France in absolute silence. At least, that was the theory. Edwards was terrified and felt sure they were all going to die, especially once he was aboard the plane and airborne. He felt even more tense as they came into land. He gripped his neighbour as the glider lurched forwards like a bucking bronco. For a moment, he thought they were going to be all right, but the darkness was suddenly filled with a stream of brilliant sparks as the skids hit some stony ground. A sickening, tearing sound shook the glider from end to end, like a giant canvas sheet being viciously ripped apart. And then, in a terrifying shower of sparks and debris, the crippled remnant of the glider slammed itself to a violent halt. Most of the men, Edwards included, were temporarily knocked unconscious. But he soon came to as did his comrades. The realisation we were not all dead came quickly as bodies began unstrapping themselves. There was a sudden, urgent stirring of men. "'Charlie, get out!' shouted Wally Parr to his buddy Charles Gardner. He and Charlie were trained to operate as a two-man team, and Parr, who'd been knocked out in the landing, was suddenly pumped with adrenaline. "'Come on, lads!' the urgency was apparent in Den Brotheridge's voice. "'Charge!' roared John Howard, their leader." Parr and Gardner were first to the bridge. Lit by the moonlight, I see this damn thing towering above me. Parr's mouth went dry. My tongue was stuck to the top of my mouth. Dennis Edwards was just a few paces behind. He heard Howard shout once again, Come on, boys, this is it! The German guard on the bridge, Private Romer, was petrified when he saw the troops running towards him. Soldiers, their faces smeared all in black, started coming towards us and in the half-moonlight we saw they were British. He screamed the alarm, John Howard's men were by now on the bridge and shooting around themselves wildly. Roma had no intention of resisting. Together with two others, they leapt from the bridge and hid in an overgrown elderberry bush. William Gray spotted a German to his right and let rip at him. As the man slumped to the ground, the others also began letting fly with rifles and automatics and hurling grenades onto the bridge. They had no hesitation about killing any German who stood in their way, working rapidly and methodically, attacking the defenders' roadside pillbox with grenades by dropping them through the slits. "'Come out and fight, you square-headed bastards!' Wally Parr was bawling at no one in particular. He and Charlie Gardner found themselves working as a highly dangerous double act, pitching explosives into the German dugouts that surrounded the bridge. They'd practised it so many times that it almost seemed routine. I dashed to the first one, put my rifle to the side of it, whipped out a 36 grenade. Gardner was right behind him with the Bren gun. I slung open the door, pulled the pin, slung it in, shut the door and waited. There was a booming explosion from beneath their feet. Then Parr kicked open the door again and Gardner sprayed the dugout with his machine gun. After one such attack, Parr heard a voice groaning and moaning. Someone inside was still alive. It was no time for squeamishness. He held Gardner back, pulled a 77 phosphorus grenade from his belt and lobbed it inside. If the shrapnel didn't get him, he said, the phosphorus would. There was another massive explosion and Parr gave a little smile. It went off like a treat. The men worked with clinical efficiency, aware that it was kill or be killed. They'd been trained not to feel any emotion. This was a fight to the death. We were not taking any prisoners, said one. Anything that moved, we shot.
0: Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms. And producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts.
1: The teams from the other two gliders had by now reached the bridge and joined the fray. Grenades, phosphorus bombs and tracer bullets were creating a spectacular display in the night sky. A tremendous sight, thought John Howard as he looked around him. There were three different colours, red, yellow and white, with the enemy firing at us and my men firing at them. The Germans had by now managed to get their machine guns and Spando into action. There was gunfire everywhere. The battle was intense. Parr and Gardner had completed their first task and so we tore across the bridge and reached the Café Gondré where a dead German was lying in the road. They were supposed to rendezvous with their commander, Den Brothridge, at an agreed point near the café. Where's Brothridge? Where's Danny Brothridge? Parr ran back to the bridge and saw a second body sprawled lengthways on the road. I ran past him thinking it was another German but the uniform gave him a jolt. I stopped turned, went back to look at him. It was Den Brothridge. He was lying on his back with his hand towards the bridge and his feet towards the T-junction. Pa knelt down and lifted his head slightly. He was conscious and he said something, couldn't hear what he said. Pa begged him to speak louder. I'm sorry, sir, but I can't hear. Brothridge tried to speak, but it was impossible. He just closed his eyes and gave a big sigh and lay back. He was mortally wounded with a bullet through his neck. Pa pulled his hand from under his head. It was covered in blood. Another of the men, Jack Bailey, came running over. What the hell's going on? It's Danny, muttered Pa. He's at it. Christ almighty, said Bailey. He knew, as did all the others, that Den Brothridge's wife, Margaret, was about to give birth to their first child. His death caused a pause in momentum Even John Howard confessed to having a lump in his throat as his body was dragged off the bridge. Brothridge was one of the few men in his platoon who was more than just a comrade. But there was no time for sentimentality. A burst of German bullets sent the men diving for cover. News of other injuries reached Howard. One platoon leader had a broken wrist. Another man got caught in friendly fire from a Sten gun and had been shot through the leg and shoulder. But there was good news to accompany the bad. Howard Suppers had successfully cut all the fuses planted by the Germans, who'd been intending to blow the bridge rather than let it fall into Allied hands. As Dennis Edwards dashed across from one side to the other, he sensed that the defence was starting to crumble. As we neared the far side of the bridge, still shouting, firing our weapons and lobbing and grenades, the Germans jumped to their feet and ran for their lives, scattering in all directions. It marked the end of their short firefight, The battle was over as dramatically as it had begun. Edwards was delighted. Relief, exhilaration, incredulity. I experienced all these feelings upon realisation that we'd taken the bridge. There was more good news to come. One of the men was still fiddling with his wireless set when he received news that the second bridge at Ranville had also been captured. Two of the British soldiers, Wally Parr and Charlie Gardner, were sent to stand guard over the Café Gondré that was next to the bridge. Nearby, there was a large iron grill in the ground, used for lowering beer barrels into the cellar. When Pa peered through the grill, he found himself looking down on Madame Gondré and her two little daughters, who'd moved to the cellar for safety. The two young girls got the fright of their lives when they saw Wally Pa, but he was also shaken by seeing them. Only now did it strike him that they were fighting in a country filled with civilians.' ''Madam, go in!'' he shouted. ''Liberators! Invasion! Go in!'' When Madame Gondré still didn't move, he handed down a chocolate bar to the elder girl, Georgia. He was touched when she nervously took it from his hand. ''They were the first two children to be liberated in the invasion of Europe, liberated by a Cockney British soldier with a bar of chocolate.'' Pa was unaware that George and Therese Gondré had been working for the British for some years. Therese spoke fluent German and had been eavesdropping on the local sentries when they came to her bar each evening. Her husband spoke English and passed on this information to the resistance. It was their intelligence that had enabled Howard's men to be so well briefed about the German guns. John Howard's team had scored a magnificent victory in capturing the two bridges, but they were now in a precarious position, undermanned, underarmed and surrounded by hostile forces. Dennis Edwards, was acutely aware of their predicament. With the bridges now in our hands, we had to defend them against whatever counter-attack might be made. They thought their ordeal was over, but in fact, it was only just beginning. This week's Unknown History snippet is about the undercover role of French saboteurs in the night before the beach landings. General Eisenhower had realised that the French were in a unique position to help the landings, for the resistance in Normandy was both well organised and highly motivated. You'll remember, perhaps, that in the first episode of this series of unknown history, we heard about the French cyclist spy Guillaume Mercader. Well, there were many other resistors like him, and in the weeks before D-Day, the Allies had been parachuting in large quantities of explosives. The idea was this. In the hours before the beach landings, French saboteurs would use these explosives to blow up bridges, railway lines and junctions, anything that might stop the Germans from bringing up reinforcements to the coast. One of these saboteurs was André Heresy, a 23-year-old carpenter who joined the resistance two years earlier. Now, on the night before D-Day, Heresy and a small band of men made their way to the little French village of Grambosc. Their task was to blow up a key junction in the main railway line that led to the coast. We collected the lumps of plastic explosive, said Heresy, before kneading them and fixing them along each railway at a junction, so as to blow up eight rails at a time. For so many of the French resistance that night, this was the moment they'd been waiting for ever since the Germans had marched into their country in the spring of 1940. Now, in the case of Andre Heresy, all was ready. The explosives were set, the timers were detonated, the men lay in wait. When the detonation finally occurred, there was an eruption of such magnitude that the very core of the earth seemed to shudder. We dived down, covering our heads with our hands. The explosion was one of unbelievable violence, with debris and gravel raining down from the sky. When the saboteurs rushed forwards to inspect the damage, they could scarcely believe the destruction. For more than 150 feet, the railway had simply disappeared. Even the ballast had gone. Heresy was exhilarated. We felt like kings. And so he should. He and his fellow saboteurs had just played a key and often unsung role in the historic Allied invasion of Normandy. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Unknown History. In the next episode, we'll be meeting the American paratrooper James Eads and some of his fellow airborne troops who were dropped into the little French town of St. Glees.
0: Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and...